Cat's out of the bag. You probably all figured it out because I was dressed differently than I usually am. And uh, I was telling Neil Audi that I, I thought about wearing the Alabama uh, camouflage because the pastor had said that we should dress conservatively when we are asked to teach. And my, in my mind, that is conservative for Alabama. Uh, not conservative would be wearing an Alabama Crimson Tide football jersey. So, But uh, discretion being the better part of valor and, and uh, thankfully not trying to be too funny. I just went ahead with a typical button-down shirt. Um, pastor and Lori are still out traveling enjoying their babies, their grandbabies, and uh, that's just a good thing. Um, so please keep them in their, in your prayers. They'll be returning next week, and uh, we'll be back to normal after that, if, if you can call any of us normal. Okay, so what goes through somebody's mind when they're asked to teach? Well, about 100 million things. Uh, Steve touched on it last week that, that uh, some of the men in the church, the pastor asked to have something ready at a moment's notice if you're called upon to teach due to a uh, last-minute illness or something of that. Um, and so, of course, your first thought is to go to something that's already been prepared or maybe something you've used before in another setting, like maybe men's study. Uh, but once again, when you spend a little time in prayer about that, and you, you think, you know, Lord, I, I need to... Let you guide me for what it is you want me to teach about. So, um, of course, as the the pastor gave me a lot of time to prepare for this, probably a month, and uh, it was sort of interesting because just before that time, I had been reading in the Psalms and re- and read a specific verse that just literally, if it could have jumped off the pages and slapped me, it would have. And that was the verse that we first read this morning. From Psalms 119, verse 29 in the New King James Version. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. Now when I was reading that, and a lot of times in the morning I try to do my devotionals and studies, um, I'm still trying to wake up. But I find that that's the best time for me to do it because if I wait till the evening, I generally fall asleep watching baseball tonight or something like that. So... As I was reading that morning, I was using the New Living Translation. It's a little bit easier to understand at, at 4.35 o'clock in the morning. And then you can always go back to the New King James Version and, and look that up. Uh, but something that I was aware of and recently went ahead and purchased was, was what's called the Amplified Bible. And uh, it's not recommended to use the Amplified Bible as your strict study Bible, but there are some very good things in it every once in a while just to look at a verse and understand that the Greek or the Hebrew has a lot of subtle meanings that in our English language aren't easily translated. So it amplifies the meaning for us that we might not have suggested. So, for example, if I look at you and and I say, what are you doing? That's very, for Bill, that would be fairly non-threatening, you know, uh, just sort of like inquisitive. But I could look over at my lovely wife and say, what are you doing? And and that has a little bit of maybe sarcasm, questioning, things like that. I don't suggest you do that to your wives, though. Um, but just in the in the tone of how we say things, there can be different implied meanings. Just as when we translate from another language, there can be different implied meanings. So in the Amplified Bible, what does that what did it say for that verse? It said, "Remove from me the way of falsehood 
and unfaithfulness, and in parentheses, to you, you with a capital Y, for God, and graciously impart your law to me. There, there's more meaning to that than just remove from me the way of lying, lying and grant me your law. It's, it's an admission that I have a way as a person, as a human being, of falsehood and unfaithfulness to the Lord. There's an admission there. And we're asking for His grace to give us His law, to remind us of His law. And we are no longer under the law, per se, because of the salvation of Jesus Christ. But I will get to a point later in this talk that still speaks to the importance of the law and of where the Ten Commandments can fit into our daily lives. Well, here's in the New Living Translation. So you can imagine at about 5 o'clock in the morning and the coffee's not even kicking in. And this is what I read. It says, Keep me from lying to myself and give me the privilege of knowing your law. And like I said, that just jumped out the page and slapped me. Like, slap your mama good cooking? It slapped me hard. Because I realized that throughout my life, I have lied to myself to rationalize behaviors. Um, and I still do it. I'm not perfect. But the second part of that verse, and this is why uh, God's Word is always so good, there, there's more. And it says, give me the privilege of knowing your law. What does that imply? It implies that it's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we should just expect, but it's a privilege to even know God. That He has taken time to touch each and every person in this room, in their heart, in some way, through His Holy Spirit, and say, I want to enter into a relationship with you. It is a privilege. It's not a right. And we should be very grateful for that. So some rhetorical questions here. Have we fallen into the trap of lying to ourselves, calling it rationalization, and thinking that we're entitled to comfort and happiness just because we profess a faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Is it just me? Or do you find that more people nowadays seem to be always complaining? Not just those out in the masses, but even maybe within the church. Do you find yourself, as I have found myself, in the complaining mode? And do we sometimes slip into what I've found to be even worse or possibly dangerous into the mode of sarcasm? Sarcasm can have its place, but in Christian talk, it can often lead to hurt feelings of other people and can also get you in a deep hole that's hard to get out of. So use it sparingly and use it wisely. I personally have on occasions found my asking myself, why am I so unhappy? You know, this guy that you see up here smiling all the time, playing the guitar. I have periods that I, f I fight what might even be considered depression. Why am I not happy? Um, and, and why as a Christian do I not wake up every morning full of joy and ready to face anything? Uh, sometimes my prayers have even contained the words, Lord, is there something wrong with me? Now, in those moments of very being buried, bearing your soul to God, um, it 
sometimes re- you sometimes realize that the answer is very obvious. And the obvious answer is, is I'm a sinner. Just because I've been saved by Jesus Christ doesn't mean that I've stopped sinning. Now, we are not a slave to sin, and there are, there are things that we can do in the power of the Holy Spirit that can help us uh, try to continue to sanctify ourselves to become more like Christ. But I would say that everyone in this room still sins in some level or another, just as I do. And when we sin, we are back at war with God because we're not obeying His commands. And that really is a a key as to why sometimes I think I find myself becoming unhappy and possibly even uh, depressed. Uh, It may not be an outright sin. I'm not going out and knocking off 7-Elevens. But there's all kinds of other little things that uh, I won't get into a lot of detail right now. I think it, I've, I've realized that this begins to happen because my life goes in cycles, as I believe everybody's does, that it gets worse when I begin to slip and I begin to compromise and I begin to get into I'm a kid of the king attitude. I am blessed. Versus a grateful servant's attitude. I've gotten into the habit of lying to myself and thinking that I deserve to be blessed. I have slipped into idea into those ideas because I do, quote, more things for God than most other people. That I am somehow better. That I am good, in quotes. But wait. There's a Bible verse for that. As there almost always is. If you'd please turn to Psalm 53... We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Psalms 53, verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. One more time, I'll go to the Amplified Bible because this is really good. The, parentheses, empty-headed fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt and evil are they and doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any who understood, who sought, parentheses, inquired after, desperately required. Inquired after and desperately required God. Every one, not just some, but every one of them has gone back, backslidden or fallen away. They have altogether become filthy and corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's some pretty heavy words. And when we read them, depending on where we're at in our walk, they should bring discomfort to us. Because if we get into that kid of the king mentality too strongly and begin to believe that we deserve something just because we're a Christian, 
we are in for a big fall. We have salvation by faith, but that salvation is only from God, not from our works. Not our own efforts or our own reasoning. The biblical truth is that I am still as wretched as anybody else. I am wretched because I have reasoned in my heart how things should be. I've strayed from a life of faith that brings hope in that whatever I'm experiencing, God is using it to shape me into the image He desires me to be. Even if that means discomfort, even if that means suffering, I have forgotten at times that it's an honor to suffer for Christ, an honor to suffer for Jesus. I've forgotten what my wife so lovingly had in, uh, engraved on my Bible is Romans 8.28. All things work. Not some things, not the good things, not the happy things. All things work together. I believe that this is becoming more and more common in our nation, in our churches, and even in ourselves. One of the buzzwords in the media right now is entitlement. I'm sure you can turn on the news any night and hear some argument about entitlement this, entitlement that, entitlement attitude, entitlement society, entitlement you name it. And we in the United States really have become an entitlement society. Not only do we have people now who refuse to work, uh, occupy Wall Street, and demand that those do work, give them their money. But we also have a group of other people who, knowing how bad off our economy is, still are angrily shaking their fist and saying, give me what's mine. I want my Social Security. I don't care if I've got $500,000 in the bank and I'm living off the interest. That Social Security is mine. Give me my Medicare. Our United States has become a group of people who think they are owed something. That's scary. And what's even scarier is I wonder if at times we are slipping for moments into becoming an entitlement church. Some people just come to church to comment and provide suggestions. Now as Christians, we have disguised our words and, and we say that rather than complain. I'm going to offer a suggestion or I'm going to comment about something that you just did. About everything from the temperature to the music to the content of the teaching. And many of those same Christians will almost run you over getting out the door when service is over. Unless, of course, it's potluck Sunday. Then they can be blessed with great food and have more time to offer comments and suggestions but they're not around when it's time to clean up. By being blessed beyond measure, we still find reasons to grumble and be stiff-necked like the children of Israel that wandered in the desert for 40 years. Yet, go to another third world country and you'll see how joyous and energized the believers often are in the midst of their poverty. Read George and Luann's monthly blog and you can almost hear how excited they are to be doing simple things for the Lord. So what could cause this nation as blessed as ours to have this attitude? What could cause a church as blessed as ours? And, and I'm saying church in the entire sense. Um, I, I think the immediate and obvious answer, again, is we are sinful beings, but I read a, a recent excerpt from an article that I think helps explain a pattern. This is called Forgetting God, Why Decadence Drives Out Discipline. And it was written by Philip Yancey all the way back in 2004. Gordon Crosby, the founding pastor of the Church of Savior in Washington, D.C., noted 
that high commitment Christian communities begin with a strong sense of devotion, which expresses itself in a life of discipline. Groups organized around devotion and discipline tend to produce abundance, but ultimately that very success breaks down discipline and leads to decadence. Cosby termed this pattern the monastic cycle, and with a good reason, for the movements led by idealists such as Francis of Assisi and Benedict of Nursia repeatedly demonstrated that cycle. In the 6th century, early Benedictines worked hard to clear forests, cultivate land, investing their surplus back into their efforts, drainage, livestock, and seed. But six centuries later, according to historian Paul Johnson, the Benedictine abbeys have virtually ceased to be spiritual institutions. They have become collegiate censitures reserved for very largely for the members of the upper class. The abbots absorbed about half the order's revenue in order to maintain their luxurious lifestyles, becoming unenterprising upper class parasites. The Old Testament shows how whole nations can fall into this attitude. And all you got to do is get into the times when the prophets were talking about we need to be aware that we're falling away from God. And all the other false prophets are saying, Ah, oh, don't worry. we got a great economy. We've just entered into a deal with the Phoenicians and the Thessalonians and all the other people. So we'll be protected from everything forever and ever. And they woke up one day and they were in captivity in Babylon. Uh, the article goes on to say perhaps we should call this trend the human cycle rather than the monistic cycle because it applies to individuals as well as religious movements and nations. Beginning with Adam and Eve's brief sojourn in paradise, people have shown an inability to handle prosperity. We turn to God out of need. And then we forget God and things go well. So how do we check ourselves? Some we used to say in the army, check yourself. Do we as a church and individuals get an honest assessment of the path we are taking in life? Are we allowing God to sanctify us through opportunities and trials, stepping out of our comfort zones and stepping into something with faith? I think we must always look to God's standard or God's Word as a beacon to guide us. We've got to get back to basics and cut through the human reasoning that clutters our minds and thoughts. And we must get away from a very bad habit of using our lives and society norms to try and shape what the Bible says and get back to letting the Bible be the standard of how we should live our lives. Here's a few areas I want to cover to get you thinking about ways you might accomplish this. I am not your personal Holy Spirit. And these points are meant to get you to open your heart and mind so that the Holy Spirit can come and persuade you or possibly even convict you of areas in your own personal lives that might need attention. Let's look at uh, that amplified version of Psalms 53, 1-3 again. I want to point out empty-headed, everyone, and no, not one. We tend to, when we fall away from God, begin to rely more on reasoning and, and want to keep our comfort. We don't want people to get upset that we might stand for something that they don't agree with. So recently, there's a judge, a U.S. district judge, by the way, who has suggested that reducing the Ten Commandments to just six would solve a dispute between the ACLU and Giles County, Virginia School District. Some of you may have heard about this. 
Eighteen months ago, a parent objected to the Ten Commandments being posted in a district high school as part of a huge collage of documents linked to America's political and legal heritage. Several other documents in the school display reference God, including the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, but no one is asking those to be taken down or edited. The school district does not want them removed, and the case remains in the U.S. District Court. And First of all, I applaud the school district. Now, the federal judge, Mr. Michael Urbanski, has offered a compromise. He suggested scrapping the first four commandments and leaving the final six. He suggested that that could resolve the dispute since the first four commandments directly refer to mankind's relationship to God and the final six concern mankind's relationship to creation, other people, and other things. He has reasoned God out of the Ten Commandments. What he fails to realize in his reasoning is without God, the Ten Commandments are useless. The Ten Commandments aren't a checkoff sheet. They are a group of standards that help remind us that we fall woefully short of what we need to be to enter into God's grace and into God's kingdom. And without God in those commandments, constantly those commandments pointing back to Him, they're useless. People will do with those without God the same way that they do with the speed limit and stop signs. doesn't apply to me. So here's an example of how our society is trying to reason God right out of existence. The judge feels it's more important for all of us to just get along than for some to be offended at the thought that there is a higher standard than our human standards. Another quick example, there's an organization that's been known for years as Campus Crusade for Christ. Recently they changed their name to CRU, C-R-U, capital letters. This is directly from their website because a lot of people, including myself, asked, why are you removing Christ from your name? Our surveys show that in the U.S., 20% of people willing to consider the gospel are less interested in taking or talking with us after they hear the name. We are changing the name for the sake of a more effective ministry. How just completely ridiculous does that sound? Is it just me? But that's, that's even what our Christian organizations are getting to. It's time for us to wake up. There is more on that website that you can go and read as to why Christ is no longer in the name and they, they fall back and say that, well, He's not in the name, but we still point to Him and we still preach the Gospel and we have a cross in our symbol, so that should be good enough. So what are you personally doing to reason Jesus out of your daily life? Let's get down to the hard question. I'm going to give you some examples of things that I personally have done. Now, I'm not proud of these, but I say them to let you know that I'm by no means perfect. And I hope that you may recognize some of them or some form of them that might get you to start thinking about some things. Number one, you hear someone quoting the Bible, but you don't disagree because it's at work. And there are strict rules about those types of things. Or you don't want that person to think that you are questioning their salvation. In other words, like that judge, you just want to get along with everyone. Number two, you reason that you will spend more time with God on a daily basis once, and you can pick any or all of these. A, the kids are grown and not such a burden. My hours and travel for work subside in a few months. I feel better. I'm finally retired and have more time. E, fill in the blank with your own set of reasoning here. 
Number three, I will make up for what I didn't do today by doing more tomorrow. And as I get older, and I've already been through a lot of things, and I'm getting more mature, and, and, and the blessings are coming now, and, and we've managed our money wisely, things should be getting easier, not harder. I believe it's time for all of us to revisit some of the basics of our faiths and the truths of the Bible. Number one, we are all sinners in need of a Savior every day, not just a one-time occurrence. Our salvation does not magically remove our ability or desire to sin. God gives us the grace of having our sins cleansed. We are not one and done. We must continue to allow ourselves to be sanctified, being formed in the image that God wants us to be. Romans 3.23 reminds us of this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Psalm 51 reminds us that no, there is not one that is good. Number two, we must relearn that we are not people who deserve any good thing. We must allow God's Spirit to fill us with gratitude for being spared the penalty that sin requires. Death of the body and God's wrath for the eternal soul. That's what sin requires. We need to remember number four. Number four. How about if I go to number three? We need to remember to use the law as a set of reference points of how blessed we truly are and not to fall that how blessed we truly are not to fall under the penalty of the law. Galatians 3:24 through 25. Paul says, "Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian and teacher to lead us until Christ came. So now through faith in Christ we are made right with God. But now that faith in Christ has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So what does that mean? We don't need the law as our guardian. We don't need the law as our guardian or as our trainer to teach us what is wrong and right. We know what's wrong and right. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But the law can still serve to remind us when we do stumble, when we do sin. I mean, just think about in an average day, just counting the sins that I'm aware of, it's probably got to be in the 20s, 30s? What if I had to go to a temple and sacrifice for every one of those just to cover sin as opposed to being able to go to the Lord in prayer and ask for forgiveness and repent, spend some time with Him? That would be a real burden. And the law really told us and showed us that there was no way we could meet the law. So we have this grace in Jesus Christ. We can continue to be grateful for Christ and His sacrifice for us by remembering what the law stands for. Number four, our daily attitude. Slaves versus adopted children versus rightful heirs. If you are a Gentile, and I believe almost I believe everybody here is, and you have salvation through Jesus Christ, you are all three at once. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment and ask yourself, what attitude do I have most of the time? I found that I tend to slip into that rightful air mode as I talked about earlier, the kid of the king. And I'm forgetting that I'm only an heir because God invited me. I'm only an heir because of Jesus' sacrifice. As an adopted child of God, 
I am justified by Christ's blood and by God's invitation, not by any right that I have. I have forgotten too many times that I was once a slave to sin and all of its consequences. And I propose to you that it would be better if I always remembered the first first. I was a slave to sin and because of my gratitude I should be a bond slave to Jesus, willing to serve Him. One thing I've found is that serving, I'm always blessed with joy. Even if I'm hesitant or sometimes grumbling about serving, once I actually start, it's amazing the transformation that takes place. And I realize that serving is one of the best ways to be close to our Lord. Even when you're carrying big stuff upstairs. <laughs> That's an inside joke between me, Steve, and Talis. So, as we begin to wrap this up, There's been a lot of, as I used to say in the 60s, Lance, a lot of heavy stuff thrown out today, right? But I want you to remember this. That heavy stuff is there to keep us between the lines, to keep us between the, the guidepost, if you will, the left and right limits, as we used to say in the military. But what do we have? We have hope. We have repentance, forgiveness, and the blessing of trying again of renewal. A good place to start is Psalm 51. It was written by David after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And we can use Psalm 51 as a model of three specific steps David took in his repentance. Number one, confess your sin and ask God to forgive you and purify you. Yes, you are forgiven through your faith in Jesus, but by taking an actual humble and contrite action to ask for the forgiveness and for the purification, you are admitting that there is nothing you can do on your own and that it is by God's grace that He can grant this to us. Instead of taking the attitude of a rightful heir, you take the attitude of a humble servant and beg for mercy. Number two, ask God to renew your spirit and commitment to following Him. I'm sure all of us remember that the first, you know, when we were first saved, we were on fire and we just would do everything. We'd listen to every Greg Laurie tape we could get our hands on and we'd be at church seven nights a week. And, you know, you want me to go on a mission to Africa? Sure, I don't got any money. How, how do I do it? And then somewhere down the road, life creeps in again and, and we tend to settle in this comfort zone. And then maybe it's renewed. Maybe you fell away from the church for a while and, and you recommitted your life to Christ and you had this energy. And somehow it's just sort of waned a little bit. Just because we're forgiven and cleansed doesn't mean that we won't be tempted again. And, and we're utter fools if we don't ask God daily to renew our spirit and our commitment. We can't do this on our own, and we need His help. Number three, ask God to restore the joy of salvation in you. Because all of the comforts and all the distractions that we have, it's far too easy to take for granted our salvation. We really need to keep in focus that we are saved what we are saved from. We're not saved from discomfort. We are not saved from suffering. We are not saved from sin. We are saved from what we deserve. And that's God's eternal wrath. 
All these steps require a grateful servant attitude. And a truly grateful servant then will ask, what can I do more? As I renewed and I've realized that I need to be grateful. The final step should be to ask God to show you what He would have you do for Him. How can you serve more? Here's a few suggestions. Relook your attitude toward giving. Determine if you've been, as in Malachi 3.8, cheating God. It states, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. I've found in my own personal life, the more I try to hold on to possessions or put my trust in acquiring things, the more sad and disappointed I'll eventually become. I'm not advocating a manner of unwisely throwing your money at any opportunity that comes along. I am, however, advocating first really looking at your motivations, praying about them, and secondly, really asking God to guide you in your giving, especially if you have not recently allowed God to give you to spend his money on something other than a big boy or big girl toy. A little stat that's probably about 10 years old, but at this, when, it, when I wrote it down, it said 38% of the United States' income is spent on luxury items. 40 years ago, that number was 8%. Out of the 38%, much of it is bought on credit at an average rate of 8 to 15%. And as Pastor Don always says, God doesn't need your money. He wants to bless you by turning over your management of His money to Him so He can show you better and deeper things. So, if you don't have a clear answer from God after going back to Him and asking, how can I serve more? Sometimes God wants you to move out. Just like the old Nike commercial. Just serve. Clean the church bathrooms. Take out the trash. Pick up the trash outside. Sweep the entryway. Vacuum the floors. Pray for the pastor before service. And anyone else who serves, pray for the Sunday school teachers who are back there every week making sure those little ones are given the gospel so they can make their own decisions for salvation. If all those jobs are already being done, please don't use that as an excuse that you don't need to pitch in. Ask if you can help. And if you're told, uh, that's okay, I've got it, because those that serve sometimes sort of just do that real quickly, not think it through, ask that person if they know another area you can serve. If that person doesn't know, just come and see me. I'd like to close this up by reading from John 15. In John 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And I think this is what it's all about. It's one of those beautiful, eternal truths that Jesus spoke when He was here on earth the first time. And it's a great way for us to, to keep the right things in focus. John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. As a Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So my uh, challenge is to quit asking why am I not happy and get back with the Lord and serve more and realize that there's joy in serving. I ask you all um, in the coming week to think about it in your own life and see what you can do. If I could get you to stand... And let's pray. Father, there's uh, some hard words spoken today, but they're the truth. But because You love us, You're willing to discipline us and You're willing to point out things in our lives that are not right. And it's because You love us. You want to see us do well, Lord. But You want to see us do well by Your standards, not the world's. Help us to understand the difference. Give us wisdom, discernment, energy to abide in You, to love You, and to show that love to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.